Hey everyone, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. On today's episode, we're talking about a really interesting topic that I think you'll find fascinating. The subject of tone words. Now, what are tone words? You know, things like bright or dark or the elusive warm. These are words that we use to describe sound. And I find it odd how ubiquitous these terms appear to be, and yet we don't actually talk about what they mean very often. And that's unfortunate, because if we use these words to describe how we hear a sound or how we feel about a sound or what we want out of a sound, and then we as engineers are, you know, being given notes with these types of tone words, and we're expected to make changes based on these tone words and get what they want based on these tone words— I mean, we we really need to have a good grasp on what these things mean. There is a problem, however, and that is these words don't necessarily mean the same thing to everyone. And that's the subject of today's episode. So stick around. We're going to talk about tone words. You're going to learn a lot. So what are tone words? Well, as I mentioned, these are words that we as musicians, engineers, producers, and just general lovers of music use to describe tonality, how something feels, how the transient information feels, how it hits you, how it makes you react, lots of different things. Most of them have some sort of visual or sensory-related component that feels familiar, right? Something like punch, right? Like, we typically will associate something that sounds punchy with, like, punching your fist, like it has impact. But talking about sounds is difficult, As Andrew Sheps likes to say, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. It's weird, you know? It's it's really hard to describe wiggly air vibrations that are hitting our ears. You know, it's like trying to describe color to someone who's colorblind. They, They may not necessarily know what red looks like to the rest of us. You know, they perceive it differently. So you need to understand something. Tone words will never be perfect. They're always going to mean slightly different things to different people. Or more specifically, tone will also sound different to different people. You know, one person's dark could be another person's dull. One person's bright could be another person's harsh. It really depends on how you hear things. And we can't know what it's like to hear things as someone else hears them. So we have to have some way of describing things. So even though it may seem like a fool's errand, I'm going to attempt to distill as many sources as I can across the internet, the literature, talking to just other engineers that I know and musicians, to try to give what I would consider to be a relatively accurate account of what these things might mean in practical terms. Now, to do this, I've divided all of these tone words into six different categories, okay? Frequency descriptors, texture descriptors, spatial descriptors, density descriptors, emotional descriptors, and abstract descriptors. So in each of these categories, we'll break down some of the most common tone words used by engineers, producers, mixers, artists, and talk about what they really might mean. At the very least, I can tell you what they mean to me. Then we'll discuss some of the pitfalls and struggles of using these words And we'll look at maybe some new ideas for how to communicate with our clients and colleagues. So let's go for it. So arguably the most common way that we use tone words is to describe frequency content and tonality, right? We might say that a sound has a lot of X or needs more X or so on, right? 
So to best tackle the frequency domain, I thought it was best to first describe how I personally split up the frequency spectrum while trying to use as few existing tone words as possible. This might give you a better idea of what I hear when I think of these different frequency regions and give you specific frequencies to help you understand. So starting all the way down at 20 hertz up to about 40 to 50 hertz, this is what I would call the sub-region. This region primarily contains the low-frequency information of bass guitars, sub-synths, kick drums, low orchestral instruments, like timpani, tuba. A five-string bass guitar will be able to play fundamental tones down this low, like the low B string, which is 31 hertz, all the way up to a low E on a bass, you know, on the fourth string, uh, which is 41 hertz. Now, this region doesn't contain a lot of usable information on the majority of instruments. You know, a lot of times it's just room rumble or noise or something like that. However, kick and bass and synths and things like that, they do actually have some usable information down here, some real musical information. So it's pretty common to filter out most of this on everything else so that you leave room for the few things that actually do have information in this region. Now, about 40 or 50 all the way up to 150 hertz, I call this the lows or the low end, okay? This area contains most of the fundamental tones in things like piano, guitar, organ, toms, you know, still some kick drums, basses, and hundreds of other instruments, really. Now, there's not a whole lot of vocal information here unless we're talking about a bass singer, but there's plenty of good, strong fundamental information for, for many instruments, okay? This is where you get the first harmonics of your subregion. For example, if you have a kick drum tuned to 40 hertz, then your second harmonic will be at 80 hertz, right? So it's a pretty important region, uh, even for instruments that come right below it, even in the very lowest of instruments, right? Uh, this is still a very important region. This is where most people perceive low end is in this area. Like a lot of speakers can't produce much below 40 hertz. So I think the average person, even an untrained listener, perceives much of their low end in this, you know, 40, 50 hertz up to 150 hertz. Between 150 hertz and 400 hertz, I call this the low mids. Now, this region contains a lot of second harmonic of many of these low instruments. For example, open A string on a regular electric guitar is 110 hertz. That second harmonic is 220, uh, as well as many of the fundamentals of higher instruments like violins, voices, trumpets, snare drums. And this is one of those regions that we end up cutting a lot from. It's a region that typically sounds sometimes unclear to us, but, you know, it's still very essential. You can't just dump all of it out because a lot of instruments have it. But one of the main reasons that we tend to clear space here is to leave room for the vocal low end, right? Which, again, is mostly in this region. And so we're often carving out space of, uh, from other instruments to leave plenty of room for the full low end of that voice. Getting this region right is really critical to a good mix. If you've been doing this for any amount of time, you've already probably known the problems that can exist in the low mids. If there's not enough in this region, things will sound kind of weird. If there's too much in this region, things will sound kind of unclear. So, you know, it's, it's really tricky. Uh, it has a lot to do with the sort of clarity and overall perception of definition that you hear in a mix. And, of course, how much... Uh, fullness you're going to hear from the vocal. 
So from about 400 hertz all the way up to 2 kilohertz, I call this the mid-range. Now, I know this seems wide, but that's just how I see it. The mid-range is where basically everything exists. Um, And yes, it's mostly harmonic information, but there are still some really important fundamentals in this region, uh, played by higher parts of pianos or organs or electric guitars, but also some really high strings, flutes, cymbals, things like that. This region is absolutely crucial to making the overall character of your mix and of the instruments themselves actually come through. Uh, this is where so much of the information that separates a you know guitar from a piano resides. This is really what defines how an instrument sounds. Now, of course, an instrument does have low end and probably has top end, but you know the difference between a guitar and a voice and a piano is so much embedded in its harmonic information. Al- almost any instrument can play you know 500 hertz or 200 hertz. 300 hertz as a single frequency, but all the harmonics above that, that's what makes a piano sound like a piano. That's what makes a guitar sound like a guitar. So the mid-range is insanely critical, right? And it's also what we've sort of evolved to hear the most of as human beings. Like our ears are very finely tuned to hear mid-range and high-mid frequencies. So that's kind of what our ears default to listening to. That's where we hear clarity, definition. That's where we hear separation. That's where we hear detail. That's where we hear kind of the majority of information. The lows and highs are also important, but our ears are also a lot less accurate in the lows and highs. It heavily depends on the volume that we're listening. It heavily depends on, you know, if we're listening really loud, we're going to hear more lows and highs. If we're listening really quiet, we will really struggle to hear lows and highs. But the mid-range is a little bit more constant, and we're a lot better at hearing it. So make sure you don't get lazy with the mid-range. From 2K all the way up to maybe 5K, I consider this the high mids. Now, this region is also responsible for a lot of the texture and character of the sounds, but it's also responsible for a lot of audibility, forwardness, clarity, Again, it's mostly harmonic information. Very few instruments actually have fundamentals up at 2K other than maybe the absolute highest octave on a piano or on a pipe organ uh, or things played by like the highest soprano instruments. You know, this is again probably right around that most sensitive region of our hearing, which is between like 1 and 4K. And again, so kind of the upper end of the mids, but then the high mids definitely very sensitive to our ears. It's very finicky to work with. Just like the low mids, if you don't have enough, things will sound strange. If you have too much, they're going to hurt. <laughs> you know, so a little too much or a little, or not enough is going to throw the whole mix off. From 5K all the way up to maybe 12K, I consider this the highs or the high end. Now, this region is basically all harmonic information. There are some things like whistles and pipe organs that can kind of produce some fundamental information up here. It's pretty impressive, but this region is responsible for much of the clarity, detail, definition, and kind of, as Dave Pensado would put it, the trendiness of a sound, right? If something is from this era, it might have more or less top end. It's a great region. We love to hear it. It helps things sound more clear and audible. But again, too much and things can sound a little harsh or a little too loud or a little too processed or something like that. Uh, But still, a very important region. And so much of this is determined by, you know, the sound of the source, the sound of the microphone, the sound of the preamp, 
But overall, most instruments will have some kind of information here. It doesn't mean it's necessarily useful, but most instruments, even bass or guitar, they still have some information up in this 5 to 12K region. You might decide to cut it out, but they're still going to have some information there. And finally, from 12K to 20K, I call this the air region. And this is something that a lot of people will call it. But, you know, this region is a bit elusive. Um, it's virtually all harmonic information from things like cymbals, vocals, and other acoustic instruments with usable information in the highs. You know, most adults over the age of 30 can't really hear much above 16, 17K anyway. However, this region is still useful for adding a bit of extra high clarity or detail to a sound. They call it the air region, probably because it doesn't really sound like any particular tone or like notable frequency or note. You know what I mean? Like it's, it more so just sounds like you're adding this sort of hi-fi detail to your sound, making it sound, uh, you know, giving it some air. <laughs> it's hard to describe. Um, but still, if you don't have enough information up here, things might sound a little unclear or dull. But that's up to you how much you want to add, how much you want to remove, filter out, you know, add more of. It can be really, really great or it can be really bad. You know, I tried my best to use as few tone words as possible or at least the ones that most of us understand like clarity or detail. But man, even then you can't escape it. Even the terms lows, mids and highs, those could be subject to confusion. On a technical level, it simply means lower frequencies have a lower number of cycles per second and higher frequencies have a higher number of cycles per second. But I can bet that most audio engineers or maybe musicians tend to think of low, mid, and high almost like structurally, right? Like low to the ground and mids in the middle or highs up high. You know, even a drum kit is set up this way, right? Bass drum and floor tom are near the ground, rack tom and snare and cymbals are up high. In many sound systems, the subs are on the floor and the mains are up high. I mean, in studio monitors, the woofer's on bottom and the tweeter's on top a lot of time. I mean, I must admit, like, thinking too hard about this will kind of get your head spinning. So don't stress out too much. Uh, <laughs> there are good reasons for all these things, but it is an interesting coincidence. And, and it's so hard to talk about sound without using these terms because we're trying to describe wiggly air with words. It's difficult. <laughs> Okay, so now that we've established our basic frequency regions, I want to start getting into the tone words that describe these regions. These are terms that you've probably all heard. I'm going back through the beginning, through each frequency region, and we're going to talk about the tone words that would be associated with a lack or an excess in that region. So let's go back. The sub, okay? If there's not enough information in the sub region, people might describe it as sounding thin, or weak, not having thump or rumble, or even just not having sub, you know? Something might not sound heavy or deep. However, to some people, if you have a lack of information here, it might sound tight or clean or articulate, right? Like if you say something has an articulate sub, then it doesn't have an excess of this very low frequency region, okay? These frequencies can be really powerful down here, and left unhinged, they can make for a pretty rumbly experience. So if there is too much in this region, it might be described as, oh, something like rumbly, <laughs> or subby, or even muddy. 
Somebody might describe the bass as being flubby or flabby, and that's a little bit more of a texture thing or a transient kind of quality, but they might just say it sounds unclear, or they might just say there's too much. (laughs) Uh, If instruments have been left unfiltered down in this region, some people might just describe it as being, you know, having a rumble or a noise or, you know, some sort of quality like that. On to the lows. Now, since this is where most of the fundamentals of instruments live, there's a good chance if someone's trying to describe something in the bass that doesn't include the sub-region, they're probably talking about it here, okay? So most instruments, guitar, kick drums, pianos, they will have a lot of strong fundamental information down here. So if you have a lack in this region, things will be described as thin or small or weak or wimpy or filtered or sometimes even cold. A good amount of information here, a healthy amount, might sound full or it might sound fat, but too much and it might be described as too fat or too bassy or muddy or tubby or boomy. If your guitar or snare is really pronounced in this region, it might be described as fat, but that might not be a bad thing when we're talking about guitar or snare. To some people, fat is a good thing, but if someone says it's too fat, then okay, there's probably too much. Funny enough, the term thin is almost always derogatory uh, in audio. So (laughs) that's right, folks. We do not fat shame in the audio community. Got to work on our thin shaming, though, because if you describe something as thin, that's, that's almost always bad. Now, to some people, this is kind of the warmth region, but warm is a really difficult term. We're going to talk about that a little bit later because it can get really complicated. Uh, Another term that people might describe in this region is something that has thickness or bottom or punch even. Now, those to me, you know, especially punch might be a little bit more of a transient quality, but we're going to get there. On to the low mids. Yes, you knew this one was coming. It's a term that most of us actually use pretty often and probably know what it means. The term muddy. Now, this is, you know, describing a quality of like not having clarity, but there's something about this region, you know, this like 200 to 400 hertz region that often just sounds really bad to us. It sounds bad to human ears. I'm not really even sure why. Something about our hearing just doesn't like it. Maybe it has to do something with like the resonance of our skull or our chest or I'm not really sure. But if you have too much in this region, it will very likely be described as muddy or unclear or murky. Not enough, however, and things will be lacking in warmth or lacking in fullness or lacking in, you know, body. Again, warmth is tricky because it's not just about low mids. Again, we're going to talk more about that later. But there are definitely a lot of warm and smooth sounding instruments in this region, like a good grand piano or a, you know, Rhodes uh, or a good acoustic guitar. And as I mentioned, in a mix situation, we often just have to clear some space in this region to make room for the vocals. But again, too much and the vocals will sound muddy also. The mid-range. Since almost everything exists between 400 and 2 kilohertz in a mix, then you'd think we'd have the most tone words for this region, right? Well, no, not really. Unfortunately, even though it's probably the most densely packed region in a mix, we don't really have a lot of great descriptive tone words to describe it. It's kind of funny to me, right? Like, One thing is pretty well known. If we have a lack of mid-range, things will probably be described as scooped. And if there's a lot of mid-range, I I kid you not, probably the most common term that we use is (laughs) mid-rangey. 
which is so funny to think about now doing this episode, but I say it too. You know, if something sounds mid-rangey, it means it's got a lot of mids, <laughs> I guess. Now, I suppose with Scooped, you might describe this as sounding hollow or distant almost. If there's too much mid-range, you might describe it as being forward or boxy. Another one that people might use is being brassy or uh, throaty, in some cases, nasally. Too much like 1 to 2K, someone might say is like telephonic or, you know, like a telephone sound or maybe megaphone. You know, on the lower side of this region, 400 to 500 hertz and some instruments can provide some warmth on certain sounds. And very squarely in the middle of this, from like 500 to 1K, this is what I like to call the vocal region. And not just because there's a lot of like vocal information here, but because when there's good information here, it has sort of like a vocal quality or a very expressive kind of quality. Like an electric guitar is a great example. If you're playing a great lead line on electric guitar through a distorted amp, you're probably going to have a healthy amount of like 600 to 1K. It's a great region and, it, and it's nice because it's not too low to where it starts to sound muddy, but it's not too high to where it starts to sound harsh. This is a really cool region. It can make things sound really forward, really expressive, but, you know, sort of on the opposite side, sometimes for things like rhythm guitars, you have to cut in this region to leave room for the lead vocal, right? That 500 to 1K sort of area. Now, we're going to talk more about texture words a little bit later, but one that I really like for the mid-range is knock, okay? And when I think of knock, I think of, you know, like knocking on wood. Uh, there's this sort of quality of transient in the mid-range that, to my ear, just sounds like that. It sounds like a woody kind of knock, say, on a kick drum or a snare. And it's not just that those instruments would necessarily have a steady state, like a lot of mid-range, but there's actual transient information in the mid-range. That's a different thing. Now, when the mid-range as a whole, like 400 to 2K, when this region is right, the mix is probably going to sound pretty balanced. One could argue that mixing is primarily about getting the mid-range balances right. Again, since, you know, almost everything exists here, since this is the most sensitive kind of region of our hearing, you know, that mids and high mids, if you get it right, then you probably got the mix right. Hard to disagree with that. On to the high mids. Now, as mentioned, this is probably the most sensitive part of human hearing, the part that our ears really respond to. And so many of the words in this region have a negative connotation, but it's not always the case. If you have too much in this region, it will probably be described as harsh or edgy or piercing or nasally or fatiguing, cutting or biting. However, if you get this region right, something might be described as being defined or present or forward or being aggressive or having a lot of character. You know, sometimes that's a good thing if something's aggressive or has edge, right? But too little in this region and things might sound kind of soft or distant or not aggressive or buried. Buried is a term in the audio world that is fairly common and it often just means you can't hear it that well. You know, if something's kind of buried in the mix, it's like you just, it's not really there. It doesn't really seem like it's there. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And again, just like with the low mids, this region is really tricky to get right. Too much is too much and not enough is not enough. The high end, okay? So not enough in this region and your sound will likely be described as dark or dull or unclear. 
distant, maybe it may be buried again, too much, and it will probably be described as bright or harsh or zingy or piercing or brittle or even present. To some people, this region is extremely harsh. Some people are really sensitive to this high region, especially on things like vocal sibilants or cymbals. On certain acoustic instruments, this region might be described as giving articulation or clarity or detail or shine, on, especially on like stringed instruments, acoustic guitars, things like that. Too much and things might be described as sizzly or shiny, too shiny, right? They might have a scrape or a sort of sandpaper quality. Again, we're going to talk more about, you know, the transient information, but too much information in the transients will probably sound, you know, clicky or, you know, again, kind of sandpapery or grainy. If you have a low-pass filter down in this region, it might make something sound lo-fi, right? Some of our most common tone words describe the state or quality of the high-frequency content. It's really interesting to me how many of the sort of commonly known tone words are generally associated with this, right? Things like dark or bright or sizzle, you know what I mean? Like, we generally know you're probably talking about the high end. That's really interesting to me. A little bit more on this later. And lastly, the air region. Now, this region doesn't have many tone words associated with it, but rest assured, if this region is totally absent from your recording, things will probably be described as being dull or lo-fi or filtered or maybe even dark. Too much and something might sound too hi-fi or sizzly or shiny or grainy, maybe. You know, if there's sort of a textural element up here, it might sound kind of harsh or strange or grainy. Some people might describe it as sparkle or shimmer, although shimmer does seem to have some connotations of like some modulation or some movement, but it's a little difficult to put into words. A lot of times people will just call it air. So I'm not sure how helpful that is, but it's a really common term. Next, we're going to talk about some of the texture tone words. Now, some of these are going to be repeats, but these mostly deal with how something sounds overall and so it may not be something that has a problem in one specific frequency region. Something, for example, might have too much compression or too much transient information, or maybe it has too much distortion. Many of these words are onomatopoeic, meaning the word audibly sounds like what it's describing, something like crack, right? That word has sort of that texture to it of what we're describing, how it sounds to our ear. So let's go through some of these. So let's go ahead and start with crack. <laughs> so typically if something has a lot of crack or too much crack or not enough crack, it means that it has a certain transient quality, usually in the high mids or maybe right in the mid range where it feels like that word sounds, crack, right? Fuzzy, typically this means that something has a certain distorted quality to it, maybe like something like a fuzz pedal for a guitar. Or maybe the low end sounds too distorted, and so that can kind of lead to kind of a fuzzy sound. If something is crunchy, this makes me think more of an overdrive or a distortion pedal or something. Maybe something like Decapitator, the Sound Toys plugin. I tend to think of like sort of a medium gain kind of thing, not something that's like heavily distorted, but something with just a little bit of crunch. Now, not enough to where somebody might call it destroyed, which is another tone word which probably means something has a lot of distortion or extreme distortion. Now, similar to crack, we have smack. <laughs> and smack typically means something about the quality of attack in the high mids or highs or both, but sometimes in the mids. 
a lot of times it's just how hard something appears to be hit. If something's got a lot of smack or crack, then it's probably going to sound like it was hit hard. Now, this could be like a snare or a tom or a kick, but it could also be like a funky guitar part. Punch. Now, I like the word punch, and I use it a lot to describe sound. Something sounds punchy, or it has a lot of punch. Punch, to me, is kind of a low, low, mid, even mid-range thing. If something feels punchy, it feels articulate in these regions. It has good transient, like nice, tactile, transient information that feels like it's hitting you, like it's coming at you, you know, it's coming out of the speakers. I tend to think of things like snare drum and toms and kick drum, but I also think of sort of the articulation and clarity in the bass, like bass guitar. I think of upright bass. I think of even uh, like the big low E on a Stevie Ray Vaughan riff, you know, on guitar, like that big punchy, like, you know, that kind of sound. Or like the low end on a Wurlitzer, when you hit a Wurlitzer real hard. That to me is punch. It's this sort of sharp but clear low frequency or low mid frequency area. So I really like punch. And, And to me, when I hear punch, I can describe it very clearly as punch. That doesn't mean anyone else is going to hear it that way, but it makes sense to me. Another one is slap. I tend to think of slap as a transient quality that feels very fast and sharp and bright and clear. I think of like the sound of slapping someone or like a high five. But I also think of like slap bass, that really clear, quick, articulate top end. Another one, one that CLA likes to use a lot, is spank, okay? Now, spank is similar to slap, but I think of this being a little bit lower than slap. I think of slap as, like, high mids and highs, but I think of spank as a little bit more of, like, mids or high mids. Spank seems more like a mid-range thing to me. I don't know. Maybe that's ridiculous, but that's how I hear it. And to be clear, I'm not talking about something that just has a lot of mid-range. I'm talking about something that has, like, a tactile, kind of aggressive you know, maybe compressed, maybe just a lot of transient information, but it doesn't feel like it's happening in the lows or highs. It feels definitely in the mids, like something has a lot of spank. It has a lot of, you know, it's like punch, but maybe a little bit higher. Grit. Okay, so grit is a very versatile term to me, but I think most of us can kind of understand, to me, it just describes something that has distortion or saturation or some sort of harmonic coloration going on. You know, if something has some grit, it might just be a little rough around the edges. Sometimes to people, grit can be a bad thing. It can make it something sound harsh or, you know, kind of that sandpapery quality to, you know, high end or something like that. But to me, when I think of the word grit, I think of distortion. And it may be a good thing. It may be a bad thing. Another similar one is edge. If something is described as edgy, I tend to think of it maybe as being a little bit harsh or like too textured up in those high mids. But if something's edgy, it might also be a good thing. Right? It might mean something feels aggressive and in your face. It also could mean that it sounds like the guitarist from U2. Probably not that, but it could mean that. The next three are click, clack, and knock. Also, maybe clock. But <laughs> these, to me, describe transient qualities. And they're all onomatopoeic. And to me, it's almost based on like high frequencies, high mids, and then more mid-range. Right? So click, to me, is more of like a high mid-high frequency thing. I think of, like, drumsticks clicking together or maybe, like, finger snaps having a click to them, right? A very bright, kind of quick sound. But I think of clack as being a little bit lower. 
You know, I think of hitting the rim of a bass drum or maybe like the sound of a snare side stick or hitting the side of a drum, a little bit lower than a click. And we've already talked a little bit about knock, but again, I think of knock very much in the mid-range. I think of a sort of woody quality, something that sounds like good kick drum with a lot of mid-range. And again, part of it is a frequency thing, part of it is a transient thing, and it's this quality of having sort of like mid-range punch. You know, again, kind of like spank or clack or smack or any of those, but to me it's very much in that sort of 400 to 1K region. Snap is another good one, and people use this term a lot to describe not only something that has a nice kind of satisfying snap, like finger snaps, but also like a compression kind of quality. It's really common when describing snappiness, right? Something is snappy, I think of almost like snapping a rubber band, right? What that sounds like, that kind of aggressive, quick, but very satisfying kind of sound. So if a snare is really snappy or if the drum sounds snappy, to me, that's generally a good thing. You know, unless somebody describes it as being too snappy, then it might just be a little aggressive. But I often like the word snap for describing drums. If the compression is letting that transient come through and it's pretty quick and it's, you know, maybe quite a lot of compression, you get this great kind of snap out of your snare drum. A couple more words to describe, like distortion, might be buzz or buzzy. You know, if something describes something as buzzy, they could actually just be describing, like, noise, like there's a noise on the line, like uh, electrical noise. But uh, to me, they could also be describing sort of like a distorted high-frequency area or high-mids. Again, maybe that means they like it, maybe they don't. doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. And then grainy. Now, grainy is a little bit tricky, but to me, if something is grainy, it has some distortion or some sort of quality in the highs, not so much the high mids. Like, I think of buzzy more in the high mids, but grainy to be in the highs, almost like uh, you've got a Bitcrush plug-in on or something that, that messes with those highs and makes them sound kind of uh, sandpapery and harsh to the ear. But yeah, I very much think of grainy as being a high-frequency quality. Now, here's a term that a lot of people use, but we all kind of have different definitions of it. Smooth. Okay, so it's really common. Something that maybe isn't very hard on the ears or overly bright, overly harsh, not, a, not too much high mids, but it's not very specific. Okay, smooth could also be kind of a quality of compression. Something sounds smoothed out or smoothed over. It could also be a negative connotation. If something sounds too smooth, then maybe it sounds like, you know, too polished and clean or something like that. It's, it's, it's a hard word to describe. So don't assume that it necessarily is good. On a vocal, it might be a good thing. But on a metal guitar riff, it might not. A word that's related to smooth is creamy. And this is something that's hard to describe. I mean, to me, it's basically the same thing as smooth, except maybe describes like a more compressed quality to the sound, maybe more compression in the high frequencies. It's just something that not only is smooth, but has a very satisfying kind of compression to it. And while we're on that topic, squishy is another term that is often used for compression. If something is too squished or squishy, we're probably talking about compression or limiting, right? Maybe too much compression or maybe a good amount. Maybe we like the squishiness of it. But a lot of times to me, if something is described as squishy, then it's a negative connotation. It means that, you know, maybe the compression is too obvious. Maybe we need to blend in some of the dry signal. 
Maybe it means that something doesn't sound clear or articulate or punchy or, you know, it doesn't have that good kind of transient punch that I'm looking for. It sounds kind of too compressed. Two other terms that are often used to describe things are hard or soft. If something has sort of a soft quality, you know, these are fairly easy to discern. It's kind of like smooth, right? But like, you know, they might be describing the transient quality of a sound or at least how that appears to hit them when they listen to it. Like, if a kick drum sounds too soft or feels too soft, maybe it doesn't have enough attack, enough high frequencies, maybe not enough mids, maybe it wasn't played hard enough, or maybe the kick beater was too fuzzy, you know? It wasn't a like a felt, it was more of like a soft, fuzzy beater. But if something sounds too hard, maybe it has too much attack, or it has too much high mids or mid-range. Um, something that Maybe they played with a plastic beater and they should have played with the soft beater on the kick drum. You know, that's just the type of imagery that comes out when I think of those two terms. And lastly, two terms that I actually use a lot, that people tend to use a lot, and they can kind of be confused for certain things, but I'll tell you what they mean to me, okay? These two terms are boxy and papery. Now, when I think of boxy, I tend to think of almost like a cardboard box kind of sound, like a transient kind of quality in something or, you know, like a knock kind of sound that I don't like, right? It's like, I like knock. I like when a kick drum has knock, but I don't like when a snare drum sounds boxy. Kind of a fine line there. But to me, I think of boxy as being, you know, very much in like the 300, 400, 500 region, whereas a lot of times knock is a little bit higher than that, five, six, seven, eight hundred region maybe. Uh, but a lot of times the knock is good and the boxiness is bad, okay? <laughs> uh, now, papery is a similar term, and it's a term that I actually use a lot to describe snare drums. Now, if a snare drum sounds papery to me, it sounds like you're hitting a piece of paper, which is like this kind of high-frequency smack or something or sizzle that doesn't sound good to me. So papery is generally not a good thing to me. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's really cool. But sometimes that means like the snare drum head was too loose. Other times it means you just have too much bottom snare mic, right? If something sounds like papery, it's got a lot of sizzle from the snare drums. Might not be a universal term, but I actually kind of like it. That's how I use it. Now, the next category of tone words is spatial descriptors. And these things are generally describing where something sits in the stereo field, but also just in three-dimensional space. Most of the time, people agree on these things, but not always. I've got a story. I'll tell you a little bit about that later. But in general, most of these are visual and pretty easy to understand. And some of them are just kind of factual. Like if something is on the left, then it's in the left speaker, right? Or more in the left speaker. So it's like, well, that's pretty obvious. You can't really debate about that. Let's talk about some of these. We have left and right. This should be pretty obvious. Narrow and wide, right? If something takes up a lot of space in the stereo field, it goes very far left and very far right, you'd call it wide. If something doesn't take up a lot of space, you might call it narrow. Now, we also have things like small and big, right? Or small and large, big and small, right? These are tough because they could mean a lot of things. They could mean they take up a lot of sort of frequency space, but they also could mean they take up a lot of spatial region, you know, like height or width or depth. So those terms are a little bit tricky. They're a little vague. 
The next one is deep or something having depth. Now, I realize that deep is a little tricky because you could be describing like having a deep low end or something that sounds, you know, like it's got a nice, strong, fundamental frequency down in the very, very low frequencies. I get that. But when we're talking about spatial, you know, terms, I'm talking about something having a lot of depth. And to me, that's pretty obvious. Something feels like it's back there, right? In front of me. If I'm looking forward, it feels like it's back there, right? I tend to think of the front of the mix, like near me is like near my face. And something that is far away is far away from me, right? Just like if you're seeing somebody from across a soccer field, they're far away. So that to me, if a mix has a lot of depth, it has this quality where you really feel like you can hear things extending backwards. So forward and back are also terms we use. Near, distant, things like that. They describe when things sound close to us versus far away. Now, if something sounds spacious, right, that's a little bit of a trickier term. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but it could mean that there's a lot of reverb, a lot of ambience, but it also could mean that there's not and that there's a lot of space between instruments. So that term can get you in trouble a little bit. Be very careful when interpreting that term. Things need to sound more spacious. That doesn't necessarily mean more reverb. Now, it could. If they said things need to sound more spacey, to me, it's funny because just a little bit of a tweak of that word and spacey to me means effects, reverbs, maybe some weird delays, right? Something needs to sound spacey. But spacious, very different. Could mean very different things. 3D or three-dimensional. This is another kind of tricky term. What does this exactly mean? Well, to me, it means that the mix or the sound sounds very much like real and in front of you, like it's floating in front of you. Like you can see and hear like the left side, the right side, the height, the depth, the width, the lows, the highs, the nearness, the, the, you know, you can hear all of it. You can hear kind of the shape of it, if that makes sense, like what it appears to be look like. If you close your eyes, you know, like, and you saw this big floating acoustic guitar or piano, you know, if you can visualize it really easily because it has that certain sound quality, I might describe that as three-dimensional or 3D. But I also might describe a mix as being three-dimensional, right? If it has all the spatial regions covered, if it has width, it has depth, it has height, then I might describe that as being three-dimensional. Another spatial term might be behind or around. And those terms a lot of times are talking about phase-related phenomena, like things that sound like they're behind you or wider than the speakers really are, or maybe coming from, you know, back behind your head. Now, a lot of times that's done with rotary or phase tricks or imaging plugins or mid-side processing. And it's not as common, but every now and then it can be really, really cool in a stereo mix. A couple terms that are often used to describe reverb and delay are things like wet and dry or affected or roomy or verby or watery or echoed, right? Like these are all terms that describe reverb and delay and effects. And wet, dry even could describe distortion, right? Because typically when we use those terms, we're talking about the effect mix, right? The wet signal is the process signal and the dry signal is the unprocessed signal. So if something is 100% wet, if you have a reverb that's 100% wet, it's all reverb and no original signal. If something is 100% dry, it's the original signal only. Now, I want to reiterate, many of these things might seem self-explanatory, but again, like describing something as 3D is a little harder to pinpoint exactly. 
you know, we generally affect all of these spatial things with our spatial tools like panning and stereo imaging tools, mid-side processing, uh, reverb, delay, any sort of time-based effect like chorus or doublers or flangers. But again, sometimes it just describes a quality about the production itself. For example, if something is spacious, it might mean that there's not a lot of instruments playing, right? It's kind of minimalist, right? There's a lot of room because there's a lot of space between the instruments. And it feels like, you know, there's a lot of depth if there's space between those instruments and you can hear the root, the reverb better. It's a very elusive, but a great example of a song with a lot of depth and space to me is Western Stars by Bruce Springsteen. If you haven't heard it, it's really great. It just has so much space to me, and it feels like driving across the open plains of the American West, which is how it was you know, intended to sound. But it doesn't feel like it's lacking or missing anything. It's a really great recording. Go check it out if you want to hear a great example of something that sounds spacious and has a lot of depth and openness. Now we move on to density descriptors. Things like cluttered or separated or having a lot of separation, openness, clarity, congested or congestion, spacious, again, busy, murky or muddy, again, repeats here. Fatiguing, dense, empty, full, minimal, bold, wimpy. To me, all of these terms kind of describe the same thing, and it has to do with how dense the mix feels. And some of that has to do with frequency content, but some of it goes all the way back to the writing and the arranging stage, kind of like we talked about before. Now, it might have some to do with reverb and delay, It might also have to do with mid-range or high-mids, like fatiguing or clarity. Sometimes you just need to mute some parts, you know? Like, there's just too many things playing at the same time. You know, muddiness or denseness or fullness, a lot of times we tend to think of those as being in the lows or low-mids or, you know, even the mid-range. But sometimes it's that the instruments playing in those regions need to be quieter, like the kick, the bass, the piano, something like that. Maybe you don't need to EQ them. It's just that those instruments are too loud, right? The answer is not always EQ. Sometimes it means there's not enough contrast in the textures, right? So if you have a big, full bass sound uh, that's real soft, and you also have a big, full, soft kick sound, and maybe a big, full, soft low end on the piano, Nothing's really going to stand out. It's not going to sound clear. It will feel too dense because everything has the same amount of denseness, right? So you need to find ways to make things stand out from each other, either texturally or dynamically or just EQing them differently. But these words are all a little bit tricky because if they're describing a problem, it's often not a simple fix, right? If the mix sounds cluttered or too congested, could mean a lot of things. Could mean you need to make... 10 small changes, right? So it's a little bit hard to describe each one exactly because it could mean a combination of things. Now on to some of the emotional descriptors, things like intimate or sweet or mellow, moody, chaotic, crazy, stripped, vulnerable, anthemic, hectic, fun. These are probably the hardest ones to describe. And very often things that you can't change once you're in the mix stage. You know, a lot of these things come from the performances, right? The emotion of a performance is baked into the recorded tracks, so you can really only do so much to affect them. Nevertheless, clients will ask you 
to access these emotions all the time. And that's just part of the job. So we have to come up with ways that help that emotion translate by using the tools, right? So for example, if someone says their vocal needs to feel more intimate, to me, that means they want their vocal to sound closer to the listener, maybe less effects or, or less processing in general. They want it to sound like an intimate moment. And to me, that's more what an intimate moment sounds like, right? Close, real, not manufactured. That's an intimate moment. So you have to kind of turn off the technical brain for a second, access your emotions, and think about what these things might sound like or feel like or look like. And then you have to turn back on your technical brain and say, okay, what tools can I use to help accentuate that or convey that, you know, with EQ, compression, distortion, effects, or the removal of any of those things, right? So to me, these are some of the most important descriptors because a lot of times this is how listeners listen to music. This is how music lovers respond to music. I mean, they don't really care if the mix is a little bassy or a little bright. Let's be honest. Like, we obsess over it, but they don't really care about that as much as they want to feel something. And hopefully... You know, the artist's performances were full of emotion and they did their best to convey all these things in the raw tracks. You know, if they want the guitar to feel aggressive, then they played aggressively. If they want the vocal to sound sad, then they sang it in this way that's just heart-wrenching. You know, like, so much of that has got to be on the raw tracks. We can't deny that. But there are still a lot of things that you as the mixer can do to showcase, accentuate, highlight certain emotional qualities. And if you ignore it, if you ignore that part of the music, it's going to be hard for the client and for listeners to really connect with it because it's almost like in the, in the theater and acting, a lot of times actors will make big gestures, like gestures that seem kind of overdramatic. And a lot of that comes from the sort of age-old practice of the, a little bit of overacting so that everybody in the room, even if you're all the way in the back, you can still understand and perceive the emotion that's being displayed, Right. And that's something that we have to do a lot of in the studio, I find, is a little bit of overplaying. You know what I mean? And I don't mean like playing too much, but I mean like a lot of vocalists, they need to articulate a little bit more than they think they do. And guitar players maybe play a little bit more aggressive than you think you do because it, they can't see us. You know, when they're listening to a recording, they can't see us. So we have to kind of make sure that the listener can hear the emotion in the tracks, right? That's a really important kind of production tip for all of you out there. I don't necessarily go on and on about producing as much as maybe people want, but that's one of my best production tips for you is when you're listening to a sound, maybe it's acoustic, maybe it's electric, maybe it's vocal, whatever it is, whatever emotion needs to be present in that sound, whatever thing needs to be communicated, like, you need to own it. You need to own whatever that is. If the piano needs to sound big and warm and beautiful, don't play it too hard or it's going to come across with the wrong sort of emotion or texture to the listener. And similarly with the vocalist, if you want the vocal to sound aggressive, they have to sing aggressively. Do whatever you can to get them to sing more aggressively. However, you can get them comfortable Maybe it's using a mic like an SM7, something less intimidating. Maybe they'll sing more aggressively. Now, some singers don't struggle with it. They just go, and it sounds aggressive. You know, I, I can't explain why, but some of them don't struggle with it at all, and others do. 
So when you're producing a track, whatever it is, you need to take whatever thing it's supposed to do and make sure it's conveying that through their playing, through the singing, and make sure there's not too many competing emotions, right? To have a really chill acoustic guitar with a super aggressive vocal might not work, right? There's like competing emotions, competing textures, and it all kind of has to make sense, right? If it's a sweet song, a really pretty love song, you know, the acoustic needs to sound beautiful and the vocal needs to sound intimate and sweet and honest, right? And the drums need to not sound too aggressive or hard-edged, right? They need to have this sort of supportive rhythm underneath all of it. And the bass needs to sound like a big hug. You know what I mean? Like, it all kind of has to connect. At least that's how I tend to view it. I could do episodes upon episodes just about these words. And I probably should because they're really, really important. So make sure that you're really listening to the music, not just the sounds, right? But listening to the music, the lyrics, the artist, what they want, and try to understand what kind of emotions are on display and how you can best showcase them. So next, we're going to talk about some abstract descriptors. And these are some of the toughest ones to deal with because, first of all, they tend to mean very different things to different people. But also, a lot of times, people are just kind of using them incorrectly, and they don't really tell you much about what they want. So let's talk about some of them. The first one is describing something as an era. So if somebody says, like, that snare drum is so 80s, or we want the vocal to sound really 80s, or we want the guitar to sound really like 70s. And it's like, you know, that's tough, because every era of music has contained a lot of different music. So if somebody says they want their snare to sound 80s, does that mean Michael Jackson or Back in Black? Does it mean Paula Abdul or Judas Priest or Peter Gabriel? You know what I mean? It, it could mean lots of different things to people. So just saying, like, I want this guitar sound to be very 80s. I mean, to me, when I think 80s guitar, I think kind of clean and chorusy, uh, almost like something that would be on Peter Gabriel or you know, something like that. But to other people, 80s guitar might be like shred metal, like with lots of delay and chorus, you know, like, <laughs> I don't I don't know, like hair metal. But you, you really got to clarify these because if somebody says they want something to sound 80s, I mean, geez, that could mean anything. The next term is vibey or vibe. This is an incredibly broad term, and I've actually considered doing a series of episodes about vibe and what it is and why we use this term, what it means to different people, because it's such a broad term, it could mean almost anything to anyone. You know, if somebody says something is vibey and they're smiling, they probably like it, <laughs> right? Almost nobody uses the word vibey negatively, but... You know, if a client says they want their song to be more vibey, to me, I guess on the surface, it means I need you to get closer to the sound that I hear in my head. I need you to get closer to the vibe I imagine. Of course, the problem is we can't hear that sound. So we still have to figure out a way to figure out what that sound is. So just saying like it needs to be more vibey, unfortunately, doesn't tell us a lot. Now, if you actually really understand what the vibe is of whatever that song is, then maybe maybe it is a little, little easier to understand. Like, for example, let's say 
they're doing something that's kind of like early white stripes, like kind of aggressive garage rock, really messy and whatever. And they say, I need my mix to be more vibey. They probably mean I need it to be more like that. I need it to be more aggressive, more dirty, more garage rock. Regardless, if somebody talks with this term, you need to have good conversations about what they really mean. The next one is modern or vintage or retro. Again, these words can mean very different things to different people depending on even how old they are. To young kids today, retro might be 80s and 90s, but people my age, retro might be 70s or 80s. People a little older than me might be 60s or 70s, you know? It's totally relative. And does that mean they want it to sound old or like lo-fi, like degraded or vinyl type effects? Does that mean they want it to sound more processed or less processed, brighter, thinner, fatter? I mean, what does it mean? I mean, for example, Steely Dan's Asia is old. It's an old record, but it was way ahead of its time. It sounds very high fidelity. But then a modern band like Wilco makes records that to many people sound retro. So it's not necessarily that new records sound new and old records sound old. I mean, some people are really good at getting kind of classic vintage sounds now. Uh, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings put out great records that have a definite, like, kind of old-school vibe. That wasn't done a long time ago. So, again, these terms could mean anything. Doesn't even begin to consider the fact that the songs that they have written might sound modern regardless of how you mix it. There's no real, real way to make a real modern rock song sound like a retro rock song. You know what I mean? If you want your Foo Fighters song to sound like Led Zeppelin... It's going to be tricky because it doesn't sound like an old classic rock song, right? There are different types of writing styles. There are different types of vocal styles that you can't just fake it. Whereas, like, take, for example, that band Greta Van Fleet. They try to capture that sort of classic 70s, you know, very Zeppelin-y kind of vibe. But they also write songs like that. They play, you know, instruments and have tones that are like that. The vocalist has definite inspiration taken from that. And so it works, and it's probably easier to get a recording that sounds like that because they are doing that. But trying to just force it, I I don't think that really works. So, you know, there's not a real easy way to make a modern song played with modern instruments, played with, you know, modern style music applications and modern vocal techniques sound old. It kind of has to be all cohesive. It has to all make sense. So be very careful with these terms, modern or vintage or retro or new. They may not necessarily mean what you think they mean. And some of them, even if you understand what the band wants, some of them might not really be possible to get. Never say never, but it might be difficult. The next one is lo-fi or hi-fi. Now, these terms are a little more concrete than modern or vintage, but they still could mean a lot of different things. Lo-fi or low fidelity is typically associated with the poor quality of machinery from early days of recording. So things like distortion, filtering, 
weird modulation, noise, and sometimes just kind of like bad sounding, right? That's like low fidelity. And there's a spectrum, right? Like super low fidelity would be like a pretty rough, bad sounding recording with all of those things. And high fidelity would generally be associated with like, you know, a really nice recording, right? Something done in a high budget studio with nice gear and, you know, top of the line equipment. So if somebody says they want to something to sound lo-fi, the trick is really just how far on that spectrum do you go? You know, if they say this mix sounds too hi-fi, it probably means it sounds like too good. You know, it sounds too polished and you can hear everything a little too well and it doesn't seem to sound natural because of that. So a lot of times people, especially right now, like lo-fi stuff is really trendy. So it's important to kind of understand some of the references they have, how lo-fi are they really talking, you know, how much do you really want to go that far in the mix? Now, again, in my opinion, almost everything when it comes to these tone words should be handled as close to the source as possible because the source is king. And we always want to try to be on the correct path for the record at all times, right? So if somebody says they want their record to sound lo-fi, you probably shouldn't record that acoustic guitar with your nicest tube mic, you know, going through your nicest preamp. You probably should record it with, like, a dynamic mic going into a cassette recorder <laughs> or something, you know? Like, that has to be kind of done as you go, and it's much easier to do that than it is to fake it after the fact, okay? I promise you, it's much easier. And even still, like you probably shouldn't be recording the nicest sounding acoustic that you have. That acoustic should probably have some older strings or it should probably be kind of crappy sounding <laughs> if you want it to sound lo-fi. Likewise, if they want it to sound hi-fi, it's like, well, the source better sound amazing and you probably should record it as well as possible. Again, some of these things you really have to understand, is this their intention? And if so, we need to plan the record, the, the plan of attack for the entire record around that. But if you already have the tracks and they say, you know, hey, in the mix, we want this to sound a little more lo-fi, they probably mean some combination of, like I said, distortion, some filtering, and that's filtering in the lows and the highs, some modulation, some noise, maybe some crinkle, you know, tape effects where, you know, the sound kind of wobbles a little bit, wow and flutter, those types of things. But again, it's really important for you to understand how far on that spectrum they want you to go. How destroyed is it? How degraded is the sound? The next one is natural or organic. These terms are a little difficult to describe, but to me, it means not heavily processed perhaps, or like not overproduced. But again, it's a spectrum. What does that really mean? I think to most musicians, if something sounds natural or organic, it doesn't sound maybe like excessively hyped up in the low end and top end. Maybe it doesn't sound like massive or like better than real life. It sounds just kind of like it does in the room. But of course, we as engineers know that mics don't really capture things in the room the same way that we hear them, you know? So is that what they really want? You know, do they really want it to sound like it does in the room? Did you record it that way? You know, is there an element of like low fidelity involved in this? I, I don't know exactly. To some people, they're talking about EQ, but in other ways, they're talking about effects. Like if something is natural, it probably doesn't have a lot of effects on it, right? Like effects like delay and reverb are 
only so natural in real life, you know? Like most of the time, they're not super obvious to us in real life. You know, maybe like room reverbs, but not so much like plate reverbs, you know, or spring reverbs, right? So again, very dangerous terms that could mean a lot of different things to different people and could really affect how you approach a record completely. Like you might use different microphones placed differently on different sources if they say they want their record to sound natural or organic versus they want their record to sound modern, you might mic things differently. You might use more close mics on drums or whatever. Like, this can highly affect the way that you make a record. So it's really important to try to get an idea of what they really mean. Okay, so the next one is the tape or tube or analog sound. Now, this one is frustrating to me, and (laughs) it's one I have to rant about a little bit because, in truth, these don't really mean what people think they mean. There's no singular sound of tape or tubes or analog, but this is kind of a commonly held belief, especially with, you know, musicians. And ironically, it's often held by people who haven't worked with tape (laughs) or tubes or lots of analog gear. So let's tackle each of these kind of individually. Let's talk about tubes or like the tube sound or this needs to sound tubey. I mean, people tend to describe something as tubey when it sounds like maybe smooth or slightly compressed or distorted or some maybe slightly rolled off in the high end or something. But in reality, this has nothing to do with tubes. I mean, take, for example, a Marshall JCM-800 versus a Fender Princeton. These amps both use tubes. Heck, they both use 12AX7 preamp tubes. But they sound completely different. A U67 has a tube, and so does a C12. So does a 251 and a U47. But do all those mics sound identical? No. An LA2A has tubes, but so does the Thermionic Culture Vulture. Those don't sound the same. They don't even do the same thing. All these pieces of gear are completely different from each other for totally different purposes. And just because something has tubes doesn't really mean the circuit is going to have a certain type of sound. Really, the only common thread between tubes is that tubes tend to add, you know, second-order harmonics. As opposed to third-order harmonics, they're a little stronger in the second-order harmonics. But how hard you're pushing them, what kind of circuit they're in, how much voltage they're given, the negative feedback, how they're filtered, this will all yield completely different sounds. Like, a tube is just an amplifying device, just like a transistor. It makes things louder. And there's tubes for all kinds of purposes, too. Like, they have tubes that are used for voltage regulation. They have tubes that are used in radio. I mean, a tube is just a component, right? It's kind of like saying, like, I want that capacitor sound. <laughs> it's like, what? What is that even? You know, it's so to me, uh, as someone who's messed with electronics a bit and, like, I know a little bit about building amps and modifying mics and fixing my gear, like, tubes are just another way to do it, right? I have gear I love that's solid state and gear I love that's tube, and neither one is better or worse. I mean, the classic Neve sound, the classic API sound, SSL sound, those are all solid state. There's no tubes in that. So many of the things we use in pro audio are not tube. And they're, you know, they're held as the the gold standard, right? A Neve 1073, oh. But, you know, why don't, why don't people get all obsessed about tubes then? You know, I, I don't know. It's a weird term to talk about something having a tube sound or being tubey or whatever. So when somebody says this, 
which of these circuits are they really talking about? What do they mean? You have to ask a better question, try to dig deeper, try to figure out, okay, so you want it smoother, darker, a little more distorted? What What is it that you want? And now on to tape. This is probably one of the most frustrating to me. Musicians will often talk about tape like it's, you know, the secret to a great record, right? The classic record. Look at all the amazing records done on tape. That's got to be it. And don't get me wrong. Tape is great. has its pros and cons. But I really think that mostly they're associating these fantastic sounding records with the sound of tape. Like, they're, they're thinking of records that are classic that they love. Fleetwood Mac, Marvin Gaye, like all this stuff. And they're saying like, oh, they did it to tape. So, you know, that's part of the thing. But what is that sound? You know, to some, it is Marvin Gaye. To others, it's Steely Dan. To others, it's Jack White. Maybe it's Frank Sinatra or the Beach Boys or Back in Black from ACDC. Maybe it's Thriller from Michael Jackson. Those were all done on tape. Maybe it's the soundtrack to Star Wars, right? Like there's almost nothing in common with the sound of these records. They're completely different. They were all made on tape. They were all made in different times. So, you know, does tape have a sound or is it mostly the artist? Well, yes, tape does have a sound, but it's not a singular sound. And it's changed over the years as the technology has developed. Tape can be really clean or it can be very distorted. It can be a little thin in the low end or it can be kind of fat. Depends, you know, on a lot of factors. It can be bright. It can be really dark. It's totally dependent on the machine itself, how well it's maintained, how you calibrate it, the tape that's being used, the tape speed, how hard you're hitting the tape, how many times you have played the tape, and probably a half dozen other things. Saying the tape sound to me is kind of like saying the tube sound. It's like, well, which tape machine, which tape, which calibration, which speed? Because you have no idea exactly how those factors were dialed in on those records. You could record on 10 different tape machines, calibrated 10 different ways, and get 10 completely different sounding records. Just like playing 10 different guitar amps with 10 different circuits. There is no singular sound. So I'll go ahead and spoil it for you now. The reason Back in Black sounds like that is because ACDC sounds like that. When you go see them live, they sound like that. Marvin Gaye, the Beach Boys, Etta James, like they sound like that because of all the factors right? In the recording process, in their band, in the way they perform, the mics of the time, the rooms of the time, the players, the instruments, the console, and yes, a little bit of the tape too. But each individual piece only contributes so much. And now that we've established how many records have been made on just tape with wildly different sounds, logic would follow that at the very least, tape is not the determining factor in why a record sounds like XYZ. It's just another tool. It imparts a character to a record. It's not the magic or the secret sauce. It does change how you approach a record, right? Like, you can't do as many of the fancy things you can do in digital. You have to commit to certain decisions. You'll often have to bounce down tracks because you're like, well, we only have one track left, so I guess we have to bounce the drums down to a stereo pair. Like, it does make you work differently. And that's fine, too. Again, you can emulate that in the studio process in digital, but that's something that you had to do in the tape world. And I might as well continue this tape conversation into the conversation about the word analog. Again, people have this idea that like good records are made with analog gear, and they don't even really understand what that term means, right? It's like, well, you can record on a $500,000 Neve console with an LA-2A and 1176s and Distressors and Fairchilds, 
But, oh, you don't have tape, so it's not analog. It's like, well, actually, all that gear is analog, except we don't have tape machine. You know what I mean? They're going to say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's going to digital. It's like, that's crazy to me. It's like, so I can have a million dollars of all analog gear, but because I'm going to digital, it's not good. It just seems absurd to me. Like, clients will legitimately decide where they want to record based on this assumption that if it's not going through a tape machine, any tape machine at all, even a crappy one that some guy found at a pawn shop that was never actually used for any legitimate or famous record that I know and love, it's still going to be amazing because it's on tape. Well, surprise, it's not. <laughs> like, they made lots of tape machines over the years, and some of them were just, like, for consumer use, like old Tascam tape machines and TAC machines that are four-track. Like, those are fun, and they're cool. I've got one, but that's not really what Marvin Gaye used, you know? That's not what Thriller was made on. We're talking about, like, cream of the crop, great technology at the time, which today is not necessarily looked at as the best tape machines or whatever, but that was awesome stuff at the time. I, I can't tell you how many clients I have, like, not gotten because I don't record to tape. They're convinced that, like, oh, because we recorded to tape, it sounds so good and real, and, like, that's how you really do it. Man, that's real music. You know, the tape machines they're using may not even be that great, but, man, it sounds analog, so it's better, right? And it's like this endless cycle of confirmation bias where they cannot fathom that the tape is, is not doing amazing things. Now, I'm not claiming that I don't like tape or I think tape sounds bad. That's ridiculous. I love the sound of tape. Tons of my favorite records were done to tape. I love what tape does to transients, especially when you push it hard. I love how easy it is to mix drums that were recorded to tape. I love the sizzle you can get from electric guitars when you push them into tape really hard. You get that sort of bright, biting kind of distortion on top. But I certainly will probably never use tape in my studio because of the workflow. I can't give my clients the workflow that they need because of the tape machine. And there are new tape machine emulation plugins coming out all the time, and they're getting better and better. The UAD Ampex plugin is amazing. It blows my mind how good that sounds. You know, so again, not claiming I don't like how tape sounds. I am claiming, however, that it's not the magic bullet. It will not make your record suddenly have vibe or make you suddenly sound like Marvin Gaye or Michael Jackson. It won't make you sound like Motown. It won't make you sound like Nirvana. The reason these records sound the way they do is because the artists, the engineers, the producers, you know, they had big budgets. They went to amazing studios with amazing players, playing amazing songs, spent months upon months working their butts off Making, making the vision happen, right? Like, to reduce all of that time, money, and effort down to tape, it's kind of an insult to the production teams and the artists, right? Like, it's so much them. People don't give the artists and the production teams enough credit, right? It's like, they crafted that, man. Like, they, they really worked on making that sound happen. It wasn't just like, oh, well, once we run it through the tape machine, it's going to sound amazing. No, it's like they worked on it. They really worked on it. So, okay, rant over. So the next terms are loud or present. These are very difficult terms, even though they may not seem so on the surface. But people's ears are strange, and we all hear apparent loudness differently. To some people, like my friend Andrew, pe some people are very sensitive to loud transients, things that are very quick. They might hear something as being loud that has a lot of transient information or very quick loud transients, but to someone else, 
might be so quick, maybe their ears don't even really notice them. You know, you put a little saturation on it and it goes away, but maybe some people can't even hear that. Other people are more sensitive to certain frequency areas than you are. So if your ears are really sensitive to 2K and their ears are really sensitive to 3K and the guitar has a lot of 3K, they might hear that guitar louder than you do. To some people, especially guitarists, they tend to think of the term presence or if something is present, almost like they think of the presence knob in their amp, which will mostly affect highs and high mids. But to others, if something is too present, it just means there's too much of it. It's too loud. It sounds like it's everywhere. It's swallowing the mix. You know, take your pick. So my advice for you on these is to substitute the term loud or present with the phrase, I'm hearing more than I want to. In the mix, you need to investigate why that might be. It could be a tonal thing. It could be as simple as a volume change. But, you know, you can't assume that it's simple or that it's complicated. Maybe you do just need to turn the fader down a dB and you're good. But it could be deeper than that. It could be too bright. It could have too much mid-range. It could have too much low end. You know, it depends. Like, nobody uses that term presence or even loudness the same way. And it depends on the system they're listening on, it depends on their ears, it depends on their preferences, right? That's another thing that you have to overcome. We all have different preferences and biases, especially if it's toward our own instrument. I was just talking about this with a friend of mine who's a drummer and a mixer, and he sent me a mix to listen to, and the drums were really loud, and I was like, the drums are too loud. And he was like, really? And I was, we started talking about it. I was like, yeah, I do the same thing. I'm a guitar player, and I tend to mix guitars a little too loud. And so it's common that people will tell me to turn the guitars down, you know, <laughs> because that's just how it is sometimes. Like, we are biased to the things we know and like. And, you know, if I grew up listening to mostly rock music with loud guitars, I'm probably going to mix the guitars a little loud. And that's not necessarily the right thing for the music. Like, if we're talking about, like, a pop song doesn't necessarily need loud guitars a lot of times. And I have a problem with mixing guitars a little too loud on pop stuff. A lot of times the, the guitars are supposed to be real subtle. So that's something you have to be aware of as well, is your own bias, your own preference when examining, is this too loud? And finally, the elusive warm. Warm is really difficult. On the surface, it could mean having a lot of low end or low mids maybe not too much high mids or highs, but it could also mean harmonically rich in the mid-range. It could also mean harmonically simple in the mid-range. A vintage guitar, for example, uh, it might be just as bright as a new guitar, but because the wood has dried up, it's been smothered in cigarette smoke and finger oil over the years, it doesn't resonate as freely or as easily than what it, what it would when it was new which means the high-end and high-mid frequency resonances are not as numerous, so that ultimately translates to a more fundamental-focused sound with less complex harmonic information. So to some, this sounds like warm. But to others, warm is just a complete fabrication. They have this idea in their minds, kind of like analog or whatever, that warm means like the tape thing, or uh, you know, they might say that like a vintage Les Paul is really warm. When... In reality, like if we're talking about like empirical measurements that you can prove, like a lot of those old Les Pauls have those hand-wound PAF pickups that are super low output, and they're pretty bright compared to a lot of like hot modern pickups. It's like people have this sense memory 
from thinking about a recording of a vintage Les Paul playing vintage tones on vintage records. Not that they're actually evaluating the sound of the thing as it is, but rather what they think that thing represents. You know, another good example is old drums. People will say that, like, vintage drums are so warm and fat, but in reality, a lot of times they're not. You know, very often they're kind of mid-rangey or have quite a bit of knock in the mid-range. So sometimes warmth is more mids and, and not a whole lot of fatness or brightness. Now, I can pretty definitively say that if something has a lack of lows and low mids and an excess of high mids and highs, it will probably not be described as warm. So there's that. But beyond that, you have no real way of describing exactly what they mean by warm. Moreover, how you get something warm is an entirely different matter. You know, in in many cases, the best way to get something to sound warm is to use a warm-sounding source, right? If you want a warm guitar tone, then make sure that it sounds warm coming out of the amp, regardless of how you might mic it. You know, you could mic it with a really bright mic, but if it's really warm at the source, it will sound warm. Generally speaking, I I find it more effective to tackle most things at the source rather than trying to do it with engineering trickery later, but that doesn't always work that way, right? Like filtering out something, you know, if you put a low-pass filter on a guitar sound, yes, it will make it sound warmer, but if you recorded a guitar that was very warm-sounding in the room with a bright microphone, that's a different thing because when you low-pass something, you're removing all of the high frequencies from all parts of that sound versus if the source is warm and the mic is bright, you're still getting some high frequency air or like even just room sound around the warm source and you don't have to filter it. So that's something I highly recommend is really trying to consider how can I make the source warmer? How can I do that on the way in as early as possible? Do I need to make the room itself warmer? Do I need to have the singer try to sing warmer? Do we need to use old strings on the guitar? Do we need to use a different guitar amp or a different bass, something that sounds warmer? Do we need to put towels over the drums or napkins or paper towels or something? Use darker cymbals, right? There are so many things you can do to make something sound warmer, regardless of what microphones you pick. And it's not always the answer to use a dark mic or to use a ribbon mic or to filter it. That is one sound as well, and it's also a great sound, but that might not always be the way. So hopefully by now, you can surmise what the problem is with tone words. Many of these terms mean many different things to many people, and contrary to the point of these words, sometimes they don't tell us anything about the sound. And part of this comes back to a lack of understanding, a lack of communication within the audio community, But I really think the biggest part comes down to how we hear things as individuals. And we're trying to express it, and we just don't know how. For example, if a sound has too much above 1K, right? There's just an excess of everything above 1K. What would you call it? So your initial thought might be bright. But it does depend on what that sound source is. If it's a bass guitar, there's probably not going to be a lot of high-frequency content. You know, there's not a lot of, like, 7K on a bass guitar. There might be, but, you know, it definitely might have more to do with, like, the 2 to 4 kilohertz content. But looked at another way, if your bass guitar was really harsh, let's say, you know, someone might hear that as sounding thin 
or lacking warmth or lacking body. They might think a bit about it about what it's lacking, not about what it has too much of. And part of that depends on their ears, how they hear it, but it also depends on how loud the instrument is in the mix. So, for example, if the high mids are just barely poking through the mix, someone might call it thin because they're not feeling the low end supporting what is very audible because, you know, the high mids have the clarity that you need, but you're not feeling that low end. But say it's the other way around. Say that your low end is situated really nice with the kick drum and the bottom end of guitars and keys, whatever. It sounds really nice, but the frequencies above 1K are really cutting through, like excessively. In that situation, someone might describe it as being harsh or bright or edgy or whatever. So it very much can depend on how loud the source is, even if the EQ is identical for both of those situations. So I guess the bigger question is, how do you as the engineer address this problem? You know, I think it's fair to say that even though we might all have different ways of tackling problems, I think we all agree that we want to tackle the problems correctly, meaning If there's a buildup of low mids, we want to cut those low mids. We don't want to boost highs in an effort to, like, mask the problem in the low mids. That's not really the goal for most of us. Like, we want to fix things that are, you know, we want to fix the problems as they actually are. But in order to do that, we really have to understand those problems. And we're giving, you know, being given information with these tone words. And, you know, we have the problems of perception and what it can mean and, how people hear things. So anyway, let's continue on that example. So they're saying the bass is too thin. So you look at the bass track, you investigate, and you know, you're not cutting any low end. Are you boosting top end? Maybe, maybe not. Is the bass just too quiet? As you probably know by now, most EQ moves will alter the overall volume or perceived loudness of a source. So often you have to adjust the EQ's volume after making an EQ move. If you boost a lot, you might have to pull down the output. If you cut a lot, you might have to boost the output. But the same goes the other way around. Sometimes the answer is to turn up the bass and then see if it's too bright and then cut some top end. It's my belief that how you handle these types of situations, what makes you the type of mixer that you are. Do the pros handle these situations better than you do? Maybe, maybe not. But I do believe that, if nothing else, the pros have had more decades of ear training. So they know when they hear the bass and the client says, it sounds a little thin, they know, okay, it's not actually thin, it's too bright, so I'm going to darken it up and turn it up. Or whatever. Like, I think they've done it so long and they've heard so many bass guitars that they just do it instinctively. But that's just a theory. So what's the solution? I think as an audio community, we need to get better at describing things more in depth. If we describe something as being bright, you know, we might want to start specifying exactly what we mean by that. For example, instead of just saying, oh, that microphone is so bright, it might be more effective to say, like, to my ear, that microphone sounds really bright, specifically in the 3 to 6K region. Maybe, maybe it's even lacking a little bit in low end. I just think it's really important to clarify what you really mean, because just saying something is bright, it could also be relative to what you tend to like, right? If you have an entire collection of ribbon mics and someone gives you a condenser mic to try, you're probably going to say it's bright, (laughs) you know? So I think it's important to clarify that as well. It is bright to my ear. It is bright based on what I like. It is too bright for me, right? I I think it's really important to understand that, the context of where we're coming from, what types of music we tend to like. 
what types of microphones we tend to like, how we like to capture things. Even though it's tempting to say something like, that sounds bright, or that sounds thin, or that sounds harsh, because it's quick and easy, these terms are not universally agreed upon. Almost none of these terms are. So without the risk of over-explaining things, like I sometimes tend to do, I still think it's important to clarify. You know, I especially think that when speaking to musicians and those unfamiliar with the specifics and technicalities of our job, we need to make sure to get the clarification on what they really mean. So here's a quick story. I might have told this on the podcast before, but I once had a client complaining that his vocals sounded too dry in the mix. So I turned up some of the delay and reverb and sent him a new mix. Mix B goes out. He says, man, my voice just sounds so dry. I just can't explain it. And I'm thinking, man, I just added a pretty healthy amount of reverb and delay. I checked the mix. I thought maybe a plugin was automating off or something that I was missing, or maybe something got messed up in the render. And I finally just asked him, like, what is it that you mean? You know, can you describe to me a different way what you're hearing in your voice? And he was like, yeah, my voice just sounds really dry and scratchy, like my throat was dry. Now, it turns out that, you know, he didn't like the distortion that I added to his vocals because he felt like it made him sound like really scratchy and like dry throat. He wanted to sound smooth and full and quote, warm. <laughs> I know it seems kind of ridiculous to us audio people. Like you would think that pretty universally we agree on wet, dry. Like that's a very common term. It's on guitar pedals. It's on processors. It's on plugins. We tend to all agree if something is wet, it has a lot of effects. If something is dry, I mean, that's literally what it's called on the, the plugin. You know what I mean? Wet, dry mix. You would think it's universal, but to this client, he wasn't even thinking about that. Another story about this is uh, I had a client one time. We were working on a song. It wasn't done yet. We weren't in the mix stage, but, you know, he was sitting back here in my studio and he was like, man, this song just sounds too bright. And I was like, okay, so, and I started like EQing some things and, you know, uh, filtering out some overheads and some of the bright elements in the mix. And he was like, he's like, oh, man, I, I just don't know why, but I feel like the song sounds really dull now. And I was like, well, I, I was making things darker because you said they sounded too bright. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. I mean that the song sounds too happy. It sounds too like upbeat and I want it to sound more melancholy. It sounds too bright now. So he wasn't talking about EQ or tone. He was talking about how it felt. So you got to be really careful. It doesn't matter how universal you think a term might be. They might not mean what you think they mean. So you really have to be careful with some of these terms. You really have to clarify. And, and maybe it is exactly what you're thinking, but maybe it's not. So when speaking to artists and clients, musicians, you know, I think you need to take extra care to find out what they mean. This, to me, usually takes the form of them saying something like the bass or vocal, guitar, whatever, sounds a little... XYZ, insert tone word here. They might even go on to give a description of how you should fix it. For example, like uh, the bass sounds a little thin. Can you add some low end? Now, first you have to consider, do they really know what they're talking about? <laughs> uh, after all, you know, that would be a pretty easy solution. Just do exactly what they asked for and you're done. But in reality, I usually go and check out the track, let's say the bass, and I look at the processing and the things I'm doing, the things I'm not doing. How's the mix level? Is it loud enough? Is it too bright? Is it too mid-rangey? If I need to turn it up, do I need to compensate by making another move? And from there, you as the mixer decide how to fix that problem. Now, what happens if you disagree with the note or you don't hear what they're talking about? 
honestly, there's no other option than just asking for clarification. Can you describe what you're hearing or not hearing a little bit more? In you know, what is there a reference track you can show me that has the kind of bass that you're looking for? You know, anything like this. It's simple conversation that can often yield some really interesting clarifications. Don't shy away from it. Don't be too prideful to ask for it. You know, it doesn't take that much time. Just be very careful with these types of tone words and make sure you understand what the client really means. So in summary, I realize that tone words are always going to be around. I realize they're always going to plague the process and make some things easier and some things harder. I realize that in many cases, among like-minded individuals, they are the fastest and easiest ways to describe how something sounds. But I also realize they're flaws, and you should too. So never be afraid to ask for clarification from fellow engineers or from clients about what they're saying. And also don't be so prideful that when making declarations about how something sounds, you're ignoring the fact that you might be hearing it wrong too. You might be the one hearing it differently. You might be the one who's biased, you know, based on your own preferences. Realize that that is very possible. So I hope this episode has been informative, interesting, has given you a lot of things to consider about tone words and the problems with tone words. If you have any questions or comments, please send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to check out the website, recordingloungepodcast.com, as well as the YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash recordinglounge. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, you can check out patreon.com slash recordinglounge. And that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, which you can donate a certain amount per episode. You'll only be charged when I come out with new content. And doing so will also get you access to cool Recording Lounge quick tips that are only available to Patreon members. So these are short episodes that have additional cool little quick tips that I couldn't necessarily turn into a full episode of the Recording Lounge, but they're still cool, important information. So I hope you have a good rest of your week, good rest of your month. I will talk to you next time.